Chapter 7, Playing Games In Season 2, Chapter 9, The Gate, Steve tries to use a sports analogy to drive home a point. If Coach calls a play, he says, bottom line, you execute it. The kids look at him as if he's an alien. It's the wrong audience. Okay, first of all, responds Mike, this isn't some stupid sports game. Second of all, we're not even in the game. We're on the bench. The exchange is indicative of the minimal role sports play in the series. Those just aren't the games these kids are into. Other than Steve and Billy's basketball showdown in Chapter 3, which Steve Harrington describes as having a homoerotic Top Gun Volleyball's sort of vibe, we never really see or even hear about sports in the series. There are no Friday Night Lights, no posters of 80s basketball star Mantic Johnson or Indiana native Larry Bird in the bedrooms. There is no mention of the Bobby Knight-led Indiana Hoosers, a powerhouse in the 80s that won national championships in 1981 and 1987. These kids simply aren't into sports. They are, as Lucas's sister Erica memorably puts it, a bunch of nerds. D&D. What the boys in Stranger Things are into is Dungeons & Dragons, a game that does not simply make a one-time cameo as in E.T., but is artfully woven into the language and framework of the story. The fantasy role-playing game first came out in 1974. It grew in popularity in the late 1970s and 80s, establishing a subculture of enthusiasts drawn into its into its emphasis on intelligence, camaraderie, and imagination. Before long, multiple books were published elabor elaborating on its intricate rules and concepts. By 1981, D&D had an established 3 million players and was widely 
associated with geek culture. The game is accredited not only with bridging the worlds of fantasy and gaming, but also for establishing a successful blueprint for role-playing games. Tactical Studies Rules TSR, which which published the game, created two distinct iterations after their initial role and wave of popularity. The first was more simplified and accessible, aimed at the general public. The second, referred to as Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, AD&D, was for more serious players and required greater knowledge and fluency. As we've seen the beginning of, of Season 1, Chapter 1, The Vanishing of Will Byers in Stranger Things, D&D is typically played around a table with a board, um, dice, and miniature figurines. These figurines represent specific characters with specific uh, specialties for so for example in the kids game in the willow basement might plays the dungeon master the game's referee and storyteller lucas plays a knight dustin plays a dwarf and will plays a wizard the group as a whole is referred to as a party Each character plays an important role in the overall campaign, while also developing individual attributes and powers. A campaign can go on for hours, even days, as the party problem-solves battles, uh, gathers knowledge, embarks on various adventures. In Stranger Things, we learn that the game the boys are playing at the the beginning of, of Chapter 1 took weeks of planning and was going for about 10 hours before Mrs. Willer called it off. It is easy to see D&D's appeal to Mike, Will, Dustin, and Luke, and Lucas, four boys with active imaginations and a love of adventure. It is not hard to see how it operates as a metaphor for real-life exploits and foreshadows events to come. For example, in that opening scene in chapter one, Will is forced to face down the Demogorgon himself. Lucas advises him to fireball it while Dustin tells him to cast a protection spell. Will decides to fireball but rolls a seven. He needed a 13 or higher, meaning he was defeated by the Demogorgon. Not long after finishing the game, of course, Will is chased down and snatched from his shed by a mysterious monster the boys refer to as the Demogorgon. Such connections between the game and real life, particularly in assigning names to things outside of ordinary experiences, recur throughout the series. These kids were big D&D nerds, explains Matt Duffer, so they can understand this through the Dungeons and Dragons mythology and terminology. And that makes them and that makes everything that's happening easier to understand for the kids than it does for the adults. They have been introduced to these concepts before. And then, of course, they have their Mr. Clark, their 1980s Wikipedia. So it's fun and it's challenging for the characters to figure out what's going on. They have to use what's at their disposal, which is Dungeons and Dragons and their science teacher. Numerous terms used in the show thus originate from Dungeons and Dragons, although they are not uh, so much exact correlations as approximations. So what is a Demogorgon? 
In D&D, it represents the Prince of Demons, a very rare creature that struck fear in players of the game, possessing a Valdemar-like mystique. In the D&D Monster Manual, its stat block reveals devastating powers and protections. We see it represented in the game as a dual-headed lizard-like creature. Confronting it is in the context of D&D meant near certain death. Such demonic creatures and characters led to what the BBC describes as the 1980s, the great 1980s Dungeons and and Dragons panic. Gradually, as the game increased in popularity, some parents became concerned about its influence on young minds, particularly after two teenage fans of the game committed suicide. There was no evidence that D&D was responsible for their deaths. Conservative Christian groups denounced it as an occult tool that opens up young people to influence or possession by demons. Concerned parents, meanwhile, launched the action group bothered about Dungeons and Dragons bad in 1983, blaming the game for encouraging Satanism and sex, perversion and suicide, among other things. While the controversy eventually waned, it speaks to how unfamiliar role-playing games were at the time and how subversive its influence on fantasy and the supernatural was in more traditional homes. For the characters in Stranger Things, however, it offers a useful framework to explain and articulate their real-life encounters and adventures. In Chapter 5, The Flea and the Acrobat, for example, Eleven flips the D&D board upside down to illustrate that Will is hiding in another dimension. Like the Veil of Shadows, explains Dustin, the kids look up the kids look the term up in a well-worn copy of the D&D Expert Rulebook, the 1983 edition. The Veil of Shadows is a dimension that is a dark reflection or echo of our world. It reads, it is a place of decay and death, a plane out of phase, a place with monsters. It is right it is right next to you and you don't even see it. Likewise, Eleven uses the Demogorgon figurine to explain that there is an actual monster in the Upside Down that poses a threat to Will and others. When Will is finally rescued in Season 1, Chapter 8, The Upside Down, we once again see the boys gathered together around a D&D board in the Willow basement. And once again, the events in the game resemble what transpires in real life. This time, the story revolves around a lost knight, a proud princess, and a weird in a weird flowers in a cave. While misinterpretations vary amongst fans of the show, the internet develops something of a conscience around the knight being Chief Hopper, the princess being Eleven, and the weird flowers being the Demogorgon eggs or vines that begin to spread underground in season two.
The fearsome Thessalhydra, meanwhile, might represent the Mind Flayer, which Will triumphs over in the game and later with help from his friends in real life. What is the Mind Flayer? When Will first sees it in the early seasons and chapters of Season 2, he calls it the Shadow Monster. The term Mind Flayer is introduced by Dustin in Chapter 8, the Mind Flayer. Dustin not only seems to have an encyclopedic knowledge of D&D, he also loves giving things names. See also Demodogs and Dart. As Mike explains the characteristics of the Shadow Monster, the Hive Mind, the Brain, the desire to control, Dustin once again thinks in D&D terms. Like the Mind Flayer, he says. They look up the term in Will's D&D expert rule, rule book and immediately see the connections. It has tentacles, it is highly evil, and as Dustin explains, it enslaves races of other dimensions by taking over their brains using its highly developed powers. With all of this D with all of the D and D terms used in the show, the parallels are not intended to be exact. In D and D, for example, the Mind Flayer is a humanoid that only resides in subterranean places. The Mind Flayer in Stranger Things, by contrast, is an enormous spider-like creature towering in the sky. The Duffer Brothers drew from a range of inspirations from its form and characteristics, including the work of H.P. Lovecraft. Then they went looking through a D&D manual to see if they could find something similar. That's when they found the Mind Flayer. It has nothing to do with the shape or the way it looks or the particles, explains Ross Duffer, but the fact that it moves from dimension to, to dimension in infecting the minds of others in order to control them and spread itself. I can't remember everything else, but it's everything that we were talking about with our shadow monster. In season two, the boys also get new D&D-based character roles. When newcomer Max asks to join the party, Mike declares that all the roles are filled. He is the Petalon, the Holy Knight leader. Lucas is the ranger, the warrior and hunter. Dustin is the bard, well-versed in spells and language. And Eleven is the mage, the wizard with special psychic powers. Max suggests that she could be the Zoomer, but the suggestion is completely rejected. It appears that Mike sees her as a threat to the group's cohesion and focus, similar to how Lucas felt about Eleven in Season 1. There are a couple of other significant references to D&D in Season 2. Among Will's drawings and self-portraits, we see one in which he is Will the Wise, Chapter 4. In fact, he is called Will the Wise. In this role, he is not a victim or freak or zombie, but a wizard-like creature, violently leading a group into battle. Mike also believes Will has true sight, a D&D term that indicates the ability to see invisible creatures and objects, detect illusions, and penetrate alternative dimensions. Perhaps Mike reasons Will's episodes aren't flashbacks. Perhaps they are real visions into the Upside Down. Just as the clashes, should I, should I stay or should I go, was not merely used as soundtrack, but interwoven into the characters and storyline so similarly 
Dungeons and Dragons is far more than a prop or nostalgic game reference. It offers a symbolic mythology through which the characters and audience navigate their adventures. Video games. While Dungeons and Dragons plays a crucial role in the first two seasons of Stranger Things, it is not the only game we see integrated into the show. The 1980s also saw the birth of video games and the explosion of arcades. We were hoping to do with the arcade in season two what we did in season one with D&D, explains Ross Duffer, which was to do a bit of foreshadowing for the whole season, with Lucas getting princess daphne and the monsters in dig dug we were hoping to roughly set up where we were going to go in the next nine hours in addition to providing a narrative frame it also harkens back to a brief moment in american history roughly 1978 through 1983 when arcades were the holy temple of recreation for kids and teenagers they remained popular for another decade but the early 1980s represents the peak a 1982 cover story for Time declared that video games were blitzing the world, estimating that arcades in America had increased to over 13,000. New groundbreaking games seemed to appear every week. First games like Space Invaders and Asteroids, both of which can be found in just about every arcade in the late 1970s, early 80s. Then in 1980 came Pac-Man which became the most successful video game of its era and a social phenomenon. Hundreds of thousands of machines were sold in its first year alone. Those machines generated an astonishing $1 billion in quarters in a single year. Higher gross revenues than Star Wars. Pac-Man was also credited for bringing in more girls. An estimated 60% of its players were female far more than any other game at the time. Pac-Man became the most iconic game of the early video game industry, where there were plenty of others that captured, that captured young people's imaginations, including games like Centipede, Frogger, Galaga, Donkey Kong, and Tron. The later game was a tie-in to the futuristic 1982 movie of the same name. When it first hit arcades, the Blue and black machines were often set aside in a feature and, and featured in an area where one might wait hours to have their turn to take control of the glowing blue joystick. It is difficult to convey the sense of wonder and excitement arcades created in their early years. It was, it was a much different experience than gaming today. For one, most everyone was standing up. But more significantly, it was a social, communal experience. Going to the arcade was like entering some action-packed, quarter-clinking, neon wonderland. 
You'd meet your friends there. You'd play amazing new games. You'd eat junk food. You'd check out the girl or boy you liked. And for the most part, parents were nowhere to be seen. Like Dungeons and Dragons, arcades generated controversy. Some people believed that they were rotting children's brains. Others, meanwhile, saw them as a as a hideistic uh, den for illicit behavior. Still, others worried it was an easy target for predators and kidnappers. Yet, for the most part, such dangers were overhyped. For those who came of became of age of during the this period, this iteration of the arcade, not the current stale Chuck E. Cheese or Dave and Buster's model, brings back more memories. As photography editor Ryan Dundon writes, the jingling quarters, sticky plastic surfaces, and crunchy carpeting of the arcade will always conjure deviant yearnings of those glowy dark sanctuaries our mothers always warned us about. Stranger Things allows us to re-enter one of the sanctuaries at the beginning of Season 2, Chapter 1, Mad Max. Before they arrive at the arcade, we see the kids scrounging around for quarters. Well, Dustin, Dustin is scrounging around for quarters in a, a, uh, a couch. Nevertheless, Lucas has been working like a man to uh, earn some extra coin. Mike, meanwhile, decides to, to steal change out of his sister Nancy's piggy bank. They arrive on their bikes, except Will, who is dropped off by his mom due to his uh, abduction the prior year. As expected, we see lots of kids and teenagers in and around the arcade. In fact, the only supervising we see comes, comes in fact, from the perfectly cast Cheeto-chomping arcade-ridden teenage employee, Keith. The Stranger Things production crew uh, went to great lengths to recreate an authentic looking and feeling arcade, recalls Ross Duffer. Our production designer took this abandoned space, it was just incredible, and completely turned it into the palace. For us, just as video game nerds, it was really a dream come true. They named it the palace after the arcade and war games. In 1983, Cold War, science fiction cult classic and packed it with real functioning arcade machines. The first game the kids play is Dragon's Lair, released in 1983. Dragon's Lair was the first major disc, uh, laser disc game to hit the market in the U.S. This meant that unlike a traditional video game like Asteroids or Pac-Man, it used pre-recorded animated graphics created for the game by the legendary Don Booth, known for such animated films as A Secret of Nymph, An American Tale, and The Land Before Time. In a way, it was like being integrated into a cartoon or animated film. Dragon's Lair was enormously popular and inspired a number of other Laserdisc video games. In fact, the Duffers remember playing it as kids. However, it was also also often criticized for a number of problems and glitches, including uh, commonly going, going black as graphics switched. It was also one of the most difficult games to win and required two quarters to play. Note that Dustin refers to it as an overpriced piece of shit. The basic storyline 
of Dragon Slayer is simple and familiar. Dirk and Knight must clear a number of obstacles to rescue Princess Daphne, who, as we've seen in Stranger Things, is hypersexualized damsel in distress, no doubt intended for adolescence. In addition to such titillation and its cutting a cutting edge effects, however, the boys in Stranger Things are also likely attracted to it because of the emphasis of being fully immersed in a story, more specifically, a quest. In this way, it, it is similar to Dungeons & Dragons, beckoning the boys to be heroes by undertaking a challenging adventure. We see a number of other popular early 80s games around the arcade. Pac-Man, Miss Pac-Man, Galaga, Missile uh, Command, and Pole Position, among others. The other big one we see the kids drawn to, besides Dragon's Lair, though, is Dig Dug. Released in 1982, Dig Dug was ranked number six in a top list in a list of top coined operated video games of all time. Like Pac-Man, its maze-like structure and simple concept made it accessible and addictive. Dustin proudly maintains the high score on the machine until he is informed by Keith that he has been superseded. The boys rush over to the machine to find that someone named Mad Max now has the high score of 751,300. This is, of course, this of course leads to their discovery and fascinated fascination with the new girl in town, Max. The objective of Dig Dug is to eliminate underground monsters. In this way, the game was clearly not a random choice on the part of the Duffers as it effectively foreshadows the underground terrain in which much of Season 2 takes place. Chapter 5, in fact, is titled Dig Dug. As well as the mission they embark on, i.e. killing the monsters, demodogs that lurk there. With so many other strength things and Stranger Things, the line between the fantasy game world and real life is effectively blurred. Puzzles. We see a handful of other games in Stranger Things. Puzzles appear sporadically throughout the series, especially in Season 2, when Bob comes to check on Joyce and Will in Season 2. Chapter 4, Will the Wise, he brings in a pile of logic games and brain teasers, including Haikyuu, 
Hex, and Coma Cube. It is their presence and Bob's reminder of his nickname, Bob the Brain, in fact, that prompts Joyce to ask him for help solving the biggest puzzle of season two, the meaning of Will's elaborate drawings. This seems to be the overriding message of Stranger Things when it comes to games. They are important for the imagination, for the intellect, for bonding and collaborating. In the 1980s, new games, including D&D and video games, elicited concerns among many parents. Video games and arcades, in particular, became the subject of endless debate and discussion, as historian Michael Newman writes. The popularity of video games in the 1980s prompted uh, educators, psychotherapists, local government office holders, and media commentators to warn that young players were likely to suffer serious negative effects. The games would influence their aficionados in all the wrong ways. They would harm children's eyes and might cause space invaders, risks, and other physical ailments. Like television, they would be addictive like a drug. Games would inculcate violence and aggression in impressionable youngsters. Their players would do poorly in school and become isolated and desensitized. A reader wrote a reader wrote to the New York Times to complain that video games were cultivating a generation of mindless, ill-tempered adolescents. Yet for all the panic and controversy surrounding these games, the generation that came of age on them managed to survive. Indeed, some discovered that they could be useful, even educational, for young people. As the kids in Stranger Things find out, who knows when you might need to problem-solve, figure out a new concept or embark on a perilous quest. While they may not have saved Princess Daphne in Dragon's Lair, they did manage to navigate treacherous tunnels crawling with monsters and save Will and Hawkins, at least for the time being, from the Mind Flayer. And just like the arcade, Lucas gets the girl.